0: Steve. Hey, good morning. You all right? You made it with all the rain and the cold and that online option was attractive, wasn't it? Be honest. Church in my pajamas? I will. Uh, Well, good morning. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here at Citadel Square. Welcome if you're new. You picked a great Sunday. To join us, we are looking at the book of Revelation. So if you've got a Bible, got an app, got a phone, got a tablet, whatever it is you use, go ahead and grab it and turn to the very last book of your Bible. Revelation is where we're going to be. Uh, we're back in the book of Revelation. We took a little bit of a break through the Christmas season and looked at our series on worry, uh, had some fun there, and now we're going to reorient ourselves to the end times and all of what God has to say through us through the book of Revelation. We're going to pick up in Revelation In chapter 4, and this will take us uh, through the majority of the year, all the way up to about the fall is where we're going to be in the book of Revelation. Uh, We did the first three chapters in the fall of uh, whatever last year was, that dumpster fire that was last year. Uh, And where we looked at Revelation 1, the things that are, or the things that you've seen, the things that are, the churches, chapters 2 and 3, and the things that must take place after these things. And we're going to begin this morning with the after these things of Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 are uh, prologue chapters, as it were, to what uh, will follow when the judgments of God show up in Revelation chapter 6 and take you up till about chapter uh, 20. So that's where we're going to be. Uh, every week, my family and I, we have a Sabbath dinner. Our Sabbath, our rest day is typically Saturdays, and Sunday is a, a busy day for me. Uh, And what we do at our Sabbath dinners is we take time to make sure that our, uh, it's a little bit more of a special meal, a special dinner. We take time as a family and we light the candles and have tablecloths and uh, make it more of a focused time around God and who he is and uh, the fact that we are resting before the Lord. And we just take a moment to do that and train our kids in that way. It's not that much different of a dinner. Everybody is usually very loud and engaged in terms of what's going on. Not that Sabbath-ish. Early in my ministry, we had a young lady who said, Since you teach the Bible, uh, do you teach the Bible at home? Does everybody get in dresses and sit down quietly in front of you as you stand in the living room? I said, no, that doesn't happen in my house. Uh, But what I did last night was I took Revelation chapter 4, and I I said, we're going to read. Here's what Dad's going to teach tomorrow. We're going to read this, and I want to ask you guys a question. All of my kids are 10 and under, 10 down to about 2. And it's fun to ask elementary-age kids, what do you think heaven is going to be like? Uh, and we got great answers. Uh, we've got, um, they've read Isaiah chapter 6 that talks about the angels with six wings. So they've talked about, they said, well, I think they're going to be angels, and I think they're going to have wings, and they're going to be flying, and they're going to be small small little wings floating. I'm not sure what the small wings were doing, but they're floating in heaven somehow. Very vivid imagination in terms of what heaven is like. Um, gleaming, miracles, wonder, um, a lot of light, fire was mentioned. My favorite was mentioned by one of my girls who said that, that I, can, I can see in my mind's eye this brilliant and beautiful place where there's this incredibly long line and Jesus is giving crowns to people. And in my mind, I thought, you know, this is what I think. You know, so it's like a glorified like, DMV scene, which I thought was hilarious. That was just awesome to me. So I'm, I'm laughing at the table about that. But we had fun discussing that. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 are the most explicit chapters in the entire Bible about what, about what heaven is, about what happens. You have glimpses in the Old Testament. Uh, of what is happening in the heavenly realms. You have prophets that mention uh, the Lord high and lifted up among his angels in 1 Kings 22. You have the image uh, that is given to the prophet Ezekiel. We sung a song here this morning. These are the greatest, this is the easiest service to plan songs for, isn't it? Because they all come out of Revelation chapter 4. I mean, they're the easiest songs in the world to pick. You talk about the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is from Daniel chapter 7 when Daniel observes the throne and the thrones that are set up and the books are open for judgment. Uh, You have images that come out of Exodus 24 when Moses receives the law and the elders go up with God to eat with him. You have the passage in Isaiah 6 where uh, a very well-known passage where uh, I I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Well, all of those Old Testament flashes of imagery find their resolution here in Revelation chapter 4. And the book of Revelation does something for us that I think is very important. Without the book of Revelation, you're really left with a lot of uh, unresolved chords in your Bible. Your Bible would end with the book of Jude. And if you know anything about the book of Jude, the book of Jude is a mess. There's all sorts of corruption and difficulty and false worship that's happening in Jude's day that Jude writes about. But Revelation, uh, it, it ties up these major themes for us that run through the scriptures. What do we do with injustices and oppression? You find out in the book of Revelation. What will God ultimately do to Satan and his demons? You find out in the book of Revelation. What do we do about the world philosophies and the competing convictions about what we ought to believe about what is true about God, Satan, sin, death, truth, life? You find that out in the book of Revelation. What do we do with death? What do we do with a creation that is groaning for the revelation of the sons of God that Paul talks about in the book of Romans? You find out in the book of Revelation. So you must have in your Bible a book of Revelation that tells you how it all ends. And in the book of Revelation, you have the last chronological verse in your Bible, which is they will reign forever and forever. So do we need to know where the story is going? Don't you feel like in life you go, gosh, I'm here, but I don't know where this whole thing is going. I'm in the valley, but I'd like to know where the the last stop is. And that's what Revelation gives you. And as such, the book of Revelation is a book about judgment, but it's also a book about hope. It's a book that shows you that, that God is not uh, unconcerned. It's a book that shows you that uh, God knows where it's headed and God is completely sovereign and has all power, all glory, all authority to bring his purposes and his ends to bear on a world that has rebelled against him. So here's where we're going to begin today, is we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 4. Y'all there? Revelation 4. You're going to see a great throne room scene. Everything, the throne is mentioned 14 different times in this text. What do you think the point of Revelation 4 is? It's the throne, right? So let's pray and go home. No, just kidding. All right, let's pray and let's ask God for his grace as we look at the throne room scene in heaven in Revelation chapter 4. Father in heaven, as we've already sung, we uh, pray that you would reorient our heart and minds to the truth of this text. That we would see things about you that perhaps we haven't seen before, that you would captivate our attention and our affection here this morning that as we come together on a rainy day where it's hard to see the sun, we pray that this text would enlighten our eyes and bring us to heaven's glories. Father, for those who come in discouraged, for those who come in uh, unsure and uncertain of your character or your word or your promises or your power, who say, we believe but help our unbelief. Father, I pray that there would be great uh, great glory here this morning, great clarity that our theology would be be reoriented and that you would draw our eyes to heaven. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus, through whom we come and our prayers are heard and are welcomed into your very presence. Amen. All right, Revelation 4, y'all there? 4 verse 1, we got 11 verses to go, let's do it. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, after this. Now, after this is a chronology of the visions that John has received up to this point. John has has been told in Revelation chapter 1, write the things you've seen, the things that are, and the things that must take place after this. So this is your very first, This is the shift or the seam in the book, and it happens early in the book of Revelation that now begins to reorient your mind's eye to what will come in the future. The things that are are the churches. Revelation chapter 1 are the things that John has seen. Now we're going to have a, an image and a vision where John is going to be transported into the future to observe the end of time and the end of all things. So after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. What were the 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 letters that John has written in two and three were letters to the to the churches. They were letters to his present day about present situations that are happening on earth that were interpreted through the lens of God's word for John and for those churches. Now John is going to be heavenly or transported to a heavenly place, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that's the voice of Christ from Revelation chapter one, that gave John his commission. Here's the voice of Jesus Christ that talks to John, says this, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Note that as Jesus gives John the next phase of his revelation, Jesus acknowledges that his work is not yet done. You believe that? That there are some things that Jesus has yet to do. That he has been exalted and he was risen from the dead, and he's uh, risen to the right hand of God the Father, and from there he waits until all of his enemies are put under his feet, that there are things that Jesus still has yet to do. And that's good news for us. And now as Jesus reveals these things to John, he says there are some a sequence of events, there are particular things that, John, I must do, that must take place, and you see how the verse ends, after this. So we're looking at the future events that must take place according to the revelation of Jesus Christ that has been given to John. Look at verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. Now, this text uh, is meant to be overwhelming to the senses. It's certainly overwhelming to John. And what John is going to do is describe as best he can the experience that he has, and he's going to write it down for us, the church. So as such, we're going to understand heaven through the experience of an individual who writes it down so that we can understand what is going on. John is in the spirit, and what he sees in heaven is a throne. Now, I've mentioned this before. Daniel chapter 7, Ezekiel uh, chapter 1, and Isaiah chapter 6 are all places that you can go to read about these things. You can go and read about these Old Testament prophets who had an encounter like this. But John's encounter here is by far going to be the most specific, the most clear, the most explanatory in terms of what is happening in heaven. And the very first thing that John sees, the thing that uh, will interpret really the remainder of this chapter is the throne. Throne in the New Testament is a word that is used... Uh, really throughout the New Testament. It's used in the Old Testament as well, but in the New Testament, 75% of its occurrences happen here in this book. So that it's a symbol of God's authority, God's power, God's rule, God's reign. All of those things are going to be captured by using this symbol of a throne. As such, it communicates this idea of royalty, of sovereignty, of power and authority that God has. Now, uh, also in this book, what's interesting is that there's going to be a competing throne. You remember uh, last year when we looked at the book of Revelation, we looked at uh, a church at Pergamum where Jesus said to the church, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Well, that's an interesting term for John to use, isn't it? And when you get into the remainder of the book, you're going to find out that the beast... The political world power that's dead set against God and his purposes also has a throne. So Revelation chapter 4 begins with a vision of a throne. It begins with a, uh, as it were, drawing a line in the sand and saying this throne is going to be opposed to this throne, the throne of Satan and the throne of the beast. So you have two competing authorities that are going to be happening in the book. Who do you think wins? Well, that's good. It's Jesus. Jesus wins. God wins. But the entire chapter of Revelation chapter 4 is is, uh, built around the idea of worship. It's not built around the idea of judgment yet. So watch what happens here. At once I was in the spirit, behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Verse 3, and he who sat there, John doesn't use any descriptive language. If you read the account in Ezekiel chapter 1 of Ezekiel's encounter, uh, it He gives anthropomorphic language that there's one seated on the throne who looks like from the waist up, he looks like fire and closed. And from the waist down, like fire and molten uh, burnished metal. John doesn't give you that here. He just gives you a he. That there's one seated on the throne. And now watch the descriptors that happen. John is going to give you descriptors that are both visual and auditory. Things you can see and things that you can hear. It's a sensory overload that John is going to experience as he's transported to heaven. He who sat there had the appearance of jasper. Now, uh, if you do a Google search on jasper, you're not going to find a a gem like the scriptures describe it here. When you get to the end of the book of Revelation, the city of Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven is described as having uh, a foundation of jasper. And there it says it's clear as crystal. So the beginning here of our description of the throne, the one who... Uh, sits there, has the, has the appearance of diamond. And not only that, you have a, an appearance of carnelian. Now, that's a stone that's red, which is similar to Ezekiel chapter 1, where he said it looks like uh, clear as glass and fire enclosed within. So imagine fire and diamond together, and that's the image that John is trying to communicate for you. The appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. What color is an emerald? green. You have a multi-hued green rainbow. Now, uh, Revelation is important as a book, and it's also uh, a book that makes you work. Now, what do I mean? It makes you work because you have to go run around all over the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures to understand the themes that show up in the book of Revelation, because it's as if God is communicating to you and interpreting in Revelation, all the things that have come before in the first 65 books. So when somebody mentions to you a rainbow, when John uses the term rainbow, what do you think about? You should think about a very particular place in your Bible and around Genesis 9 that is the story of a man named Noah, right? Now Noah goes through the flood, goes through God's judgment where God floods the entire earth, Because the uh, intent of man's heart was only wickedness continually, it says. And on the other side of the flood, on the other side of judgment, God gives a covenant promise to Noah. And the covenant promise is that I will never flood the earth again, I will never destroy in this way again. And then God gives him a promise. What's the promise? Yeah, what's he put in the sky? I put my bow in the clouds, and he gives the image of the, it's in the text, people, come on now, of the rainbow, right? So the rainbow is a promise of God's mercy. It is not a promise of God's forgetfulness. Steve, what do you mean? I mean that when the image of the rainbow is here, the image of the rainbow in Genesis chapter 9 comes at the other side of God's judgment. The image of the rainbow in the book of Revelation comes before God's judgment to where there's coming a time when the mercy of God, the restraint of God, will run out. You with me? So from the throne, diamond, fire, emerald rainbow around this throne. Look at verse four. Uh, So that's your throne. Now what you're going to see... is everything in this text from this point forward gains its understanding and its identity from the throne. Everything in this text is tied textually to the throne in reference to the throne and in reference to God. Look at verse four, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now who are these people? Commentators go back and forth on this. Many think that they are an angelic group of or a angelic group that kind of surround the throne, that they're um, kind of like the angelic senate, as it were. Is, it, is that this is a God sitting in rule among the angels? Uh, I, I don't go that way for a couple of different reasons. Angels, in, ever in the scriptures, are called elders. Elders are consistently referred to be representatives of a larger group of people, right? You have that in the Old Testament, moving all the way through to your New Testament, that they're representatives of a group of people. Angels are said to have white garments, right? When angels announce the resurrection of Jesus to the women at the tomb, they're dressed in raiments. They're never told to be wearing crowns, though. But in the book of Revelation up to this point, we've seen a group of individuals six different times who have mentioned this kind of attire, Now, I've already talked about elders, but you've got other ones in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 that have mentioned white garments, that have mentioned crowns, and have mentioned thrones. Let me read you a few. The church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Church at Laodicea. Revelation 3 verse 18, you can read these, so that you're, you may be rich, it says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Well, Steve, what about crowns? You've, we've read this in James chapter 1, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Revelation chapter 2, the church at Smyrna says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The church of Philadelphia, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have that no one may seize your crown. One more, the issue of thrones, also comes from the church at Laodicea where Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So thrones, garments, crowns, who do you think the 24 elders represent? In my opinion, they represent the church. That before the judgments of God are poured out upon the earth, you have the church in heaven. Now why is the church in heaven before the judgments of God show up in Revelation chapter 6? Now I'm going to answer that question next week. We're going to take a whole sermon and we're going to talk about the rapture what it is, why it's important, why we need to know it. But by the end of this passage, you have 24 elders in white raiments, white garments, with golden crowns and who sit on thrones. Now, the number 24, you got to be careful with numbers in the book of Revelation, right? People get all, they go, 24, that's uh, three times eight, therefore there's eight, you know, they just aren't making up stuff. There's eight vegetables, and eight fruits and eight minerals. And that's, that's representing, you know, the minerals, the fruits, and the vegetables. Uh, you'll see this in a second with the four living creatures. But uh, there's one spot, I think, where 24 is also mentioned in your Bible. When David gets the end of his rule and his reign, toward the end of his life, he says, God, I want to build you a throne. And God tells him, no, you're not going to build me a throne. You're a man of war, a man of bloodshed. You don't get to build the temple. Sorry, not the throne, the temple. You don't get to build the temple. Your son is going to build the temple. And what David does for the remainder of his life is go into uh, administrating everything that his son Solomon is going to need for the temple. And one of the things he does is organize the priesthood. And when he organizes the priesthood, he organizes it into 24 different groups. Now, is there a place in your New Testament that talks about you being a uh, chosen race a royal priesthood. It's in the book of Peter. Here's what Peter says, 1 Peter 2. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see the images? A priesthood that is royal, that is before God and around his throne, that is ruling and reigning and ministering to him. Sounds like the church to me. Now, keep moving. Look at verse five. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. Those are mentioned three or four different times throughout the book of Revelation. If you got a cross-reference, you might see Exodus in your Bible. These terms show up when God gives Moses the law. And they show up at very key junctures in the book of Revelation. At the opening, uh, in the worship context here, they show up in the opening of the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl. That now not only is there a visual description of what you're seeing in heaven, but now there's sound that is accompanying this vision that John has of lightning rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. That's from Revelation chapter 1. We saw that already. That's probably a representative of the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold spirit that comes from the greeting that John gives in Revelation chapter 1. And look at verse 6. Before the throne, as it were, there was a sea of glass like crystal. This is consistent in the Old Testament revelations of uh, Moses. In Exodus 24, Moses and the elders go up to see God. It says there's a pavement of glass. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel sees the same thing, that there's a pavement or an expanse between the cherubim and God on his throne. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind Verse seven: the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an angel in flight. In uh, in Ezekiel, these angels are called the cherubim. The cherubim uh, were placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out. They are uh, God's honor guard as it were, that they surround and protect and defend, as if God needed defense, but I don't know why. That's what he does. Uh, They defend the holiness of God. They protect, they recognize the holiness of God. Why the four animals? I have no idea. Sorry. Some commentators think it's four representations of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Some think about it in terms of... um, This is probably where I lean if you're going to push me up against the wall, but they're probably representatives of the wild, domestic uh, man and animals in flight, that they're representatives of all of creation, which I think will fit the context here. You're going to have God praised for his uh, creation ability or his will to create here in just a moment. Um, But here's the uh, first. Look at verse 8. Here's your first. uh, There's five hymns in Revelation 4 and Revelation chapter 5 that are sung by creation, both angelic and created beings. Well, both angels are created beings. You get the idea. Spiritual and physical uh, beings, both in uh, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Here's your first one in verse 8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Let me, do you see how John just, he, he gave you that twice twice? that they're full of eyes around and within. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting to me. The creatures that are closest to the throne of God see God the clearest. That they're filled with insight about who God is and then results in continuous, ongoing worship. Now, is that a good preaching point? Could I do some preaching and have a conversation here about intimacy with God, that those who are nearest to God and experience God the clearest have the clearest theology about who God is and what he is like, and their lives are characterized by worship that flows out of them because they understand who this God is that they worship. That these images invite us into understanding and seeing and experiencing God for who he is according to who he is in the scriptures. So these beings, watch their song. Holy, holy, holy. Well, let's read the whole verse. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes, around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I, in seminary, I had a professor who taught um, uh, eschatology and end times. And he got to this text in the book of Revelation. It was kind of a funny story that, that he told of subsequent classes. But at some point, he took moments, or he took a, a spot in the class, and all he did was repeat this refrain over and over and over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And some guy, who I don't know what he thought he was doing, in the back rolled his eyes and went, we get it. And man, if you want to tee up a seminary professor teaching the theology and the glory of God, in that moment he had it. And he took this kid yard. And he stopped the whole class and he says, you don't. Anytime the scriptures say that there's something happening in the presence of God and it never ceases, never stops, day and night always, it's meant to arrest your attention. To go, what could be so glorious, so Uh, captivating that could focus my attention so much that all I can say is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What do you learn from that hymn? God is consistently described. He's He's never described as just, just, just or love, love, love. He's described as holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, holy means distinctness. He's separate. He's totally different than anything. There's no hint of evil. There's no corruption. He's absolute purity. Completely unchanging. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know where Lord God Almighty comes from? It comes from Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis 17, God appears to Abraham and he says, behold, I am the Lord God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And what happens after that point in Genesis chapter 17 is that Abraham receives the covenant of circumcision, where God makes Abraham get circumcised and say, you're going to put faith not in your power, but in my power. In the context of Genesis 17, it tells you that God alone has the power to fulfill the promises that he's made to Abraham. And here, in the context of this worship him, the creatures around the throne acknowledge God's distinction from anything and everything and acknowledge and and give to God the glory for his absolute power and authority. Number three, you have his absolute eternity. That he is functionally different and fundamentally different from all creation. That he's completely sovereign and powerful. He's totally, the scriptures would call the term, or systematic theologians would call the term, omnipotent. All power rests with him and all eternity rests with him. And the angels that surround his throne can only respond to the character of God. And acknowledge him for who he is. Verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, verse 10 the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. You get John, I mean, if you're an English teacher, you would be marking off going, hey, you just said that. You don't need to tell me again. But for some reason, John thinks we need, we need to be told again. We need to be reminded that he, uh, Isaiah says uh, of God, it says um, that behold, he who inhabits eternity is how he describes God. That these angels around the throne, these elders around the throne, when they experience and see God for who he is, they continue to acknowledge his character, his person, and his virtue. That everything around the throne responds in worship to this being. There's nobody ambivalent in heaven. There's nobody around the throne who goes, eh, I mean, yeah. But there's some better stuff, too. I mean, there's the throne, but, you know, there's other stuff. Everybody's totally focused, totally overwhelmed. All of their attention is drawn. Now, your first hymn Speaks about God's incommunicable attributes. Eternity, power, and holiness. Your next hymn that the 24 elders are going to sing is going to be a different kind of hymn than the angels sing, than the cherubim sing. Look at this one in 4.11. This one's a little bit different. Worthy are you. You know where worthy comes from? Worthy in the Greek is the term A-X-I-O-S, axios. It's where we get the term axis. It was used in the marketplace. It's a marketplace word. So that as you brought stuff to market, they would put, a lot of times, they would determine worth by weight, not worth by currency. So it, it came to uh, to mean uh, corresponding to or fitting. As you put X amount of weight over here, of the pure weight and the pure standard, you put as much of whatever your grain or whatever it is, and it comes to a point of access. That there's a determination that there is value and worth, and this is corresponding to this. So that the 24 elders now say that this God is worthy. Well, why? Why is he worthy? And in Revelation chapter 4, you get your only explanation point. Everything up to this point has been sensory, hasn't it? It's been things that you've seen, things that you have heard, lightnings, peals, rumblings of thunder, things that you have experienced. But now you have uh, a didactic teaching point. Worthy are you, our Lord and God. Here's a minor point as to one more uh, point that I think locks down this idea that the 24 elders are the church is that word O-U-R. You remember when Thomas... Uh, sees Jesus. He tells the disciples, I I will not believe unless I put my hands in his finger and my hand in his side until I see the resurrected Christ. And Jesus appears to the disciples and Thomas is not around. And Thomas has this crisis of belief moment, this crisis of faith moment, where he knows that I'm not going to believe unless I see him. And then Jesus appears a second time And Thomas is with them. And he invites Thomas. Thomas, put your hands in my hands. Put your hands in my side. Don't be disbelieving, but believe. Do you remember what Thomas says? Thomas says, my Lord and my God. What do the elders say? Our Lord and God. The elders recognize a personal relationship that they have with the being on the throne. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now here's your one teaching point that's happening in the hymns. Can you learn anything from hymns? John thinks you can. Here's your teaching point. For you created all things. The first hymn is God and his distinction. He's totally uh, 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 separate The second hymn is God's relation. That how is God related to his creation? God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. What did they just say? They just said that everything is God's. Colossians 1:16 says that all things are through him and to him speaking of Jesus Christ. Everything in this passage looks to the one who has created it all. Why does God have the authority to judge? Because as we sit here we breathe air that he has created. But the spotlights that give us light and illumine me and illumine this room are his that he has created. That we drink water and eat food that comes from the land that he has created. That we navigate the skies at night because of the stars that he has put in the heavens that are his. That the elders believe that he is worthy of glory and honor and power. Not just because he created it, but because his desire created it. You see that? By your will. That God chose to create. That he who sits on the throne. It takes you back to Genesis 1, doesn't it? That everything that is, everything that you are, everything that is on this planet, everything that is in the stars and the heavens above first existed in the mind of God and are here as a result of his will to bring it into being. That all of us ultimately trace our origin back to the very moment of Genesis 1-1 where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That all of us find our inception and our purpose And our beginning in the very mind and word of God. So God, to you be the glory. To you be the honor. To you be the power. Because by your will they existed. And they were created. That's Revelation chapter 4. How do you apply that? Do you notice there's no command to obey in this text? that this text is meant to just fry your circuits. It's meant for you to... uh, Remember when God appears to Job and speaks out of the whirlwind at the end of the book of Job, and the end of his suffering? Job speaks of God at that point, said, I've heard of you with my ear, but now I see you with my eye, and I repent in dust and ashes. When men encounter God in the scriptures. Isaiah responds and says, woe is me, I am undone. Ezekiel, when he encounters God in Ezekiel chapter 1, he's got to take a week off. It says he lays down by a river, overwhelmed for seven days. He says, this image and encounter with the true God the maker of heaven and earth, the seas and the dry land, is overwhelming. Let me make a couple of points here that I think are important. You know, a lot of times, uh, churches can exist for themselves. That we have a tendency uh, to be uh, glory blinded. And we substitute, Romans 1 talks about substituting the glory of God for the images made uh, by mortal men. That we have this tendency in our lives to reduce our understanding of glory and reduce our understanding of God to things that essentially we can comprehend and that we can accomplish. And that we end up making decisions in our lives based upon things that we believe are glorious things that are wonderful, things that to us make sense, things that to us put us in better positions in life. And one of the things that I believe about preaching and teaching the Scriptures is that when I do that and when we come to the Word of God, we are meant to be reoriented to the one true glorious one. See, when I read Revelation chapter 4 and see that everything in Revelation chapter 4 gains its meaning, its response, its identity, its understanding, its emotions, its its, uh, mental acuity based upon the throne of God. And then I read other places in the scriptures that talk about all things being through him and for him and to him then it starts to reorient my life where I begin to realize my life is not about me. That creation is not about me. That my agenda on this earth for the next 30 to 50 or 20 minutes, as long as God gives me, is not fundamentally about me. And one of the things that bothers me about the church is that we have lost giving people what their hearts long for, which is a vision of something that is ultimately and wonderfully glorious. You know, we talked a little bit about discipleship last week, and and this is, I think, is a large part of discipleship. World religions throughout the ages consistently preach one big message, that you've got to do something to receive heaven. And the scriptures have a word. I read right past the word. I didn't really bring it out that much in this text, but it's, it's a word that's used over 1,100 times in the scriptures. And Christians have this word that helps make sense of our lives, that gives us a sense of purpose and understanding and meaning and a, a steadfast security in our lives. It's the word Behold. See, only the Christian faith gives you the word behold. Because the word behold in this text and in texts throughout the scriptures, when the angels show up with the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. For behold, in this day, in the city of David, is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. The word behold, it's an invasion of God. It's an invasion into our lives that invites you away from looking at yourself and examining yourself and looking at where you want to be and how you ought to be there and how soon you ought to get there and whether or not you're doing good or whether or not you're doing bad. And is my life making having meaning and purpose and design and joy and fulfillment? And am I being actualized and understanding all of who I want to be? You ever been there? that all of a sudden we have this propensity to reduce our lives down to me. And Revelation chapter four invites you by singing and sound and overwhelming sensory experience to encounter the God who Paul tells Timothy dwells in unapproachable light. How dare we reduce Christianity to something less than behold the glory of God? How dare we give one another behavior modification and improvement when we are invited to behold the glory of God? How dare we tell our city or our friends or our neighbors of something less than the glory of God? I'm going to ask the band to come, and I'm going to close with, with one little bitty verse from Paul. This is in Second Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, and Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is talking about having this treasure in jars of clay and he says something that I think characterizes the culture of the kind of church that we want we don't want to be a church that ultimately is self-referential right that goes well Citadel Square is great because Citadel Square exists for the glory of Citadel Square well I'm not really excited about that does that excite you? No? Yeah, no, me either. And Paul takes this this little bitty verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and he talks about the gospel. He talks about what's amazing about Revelation is that it's so hard to understand, right? This glory story in Revelation 4 is somewhat, it's just overwhelming. It's sensory. It's I don't understand it. It's hard to see and get in my mind's eye. But Paul tells us something in 2 Corinthians 4 that is so important for us because if we are going to be a church that is about the glory of God that invites broken, sinful, despairing and discouraged people to encounter and to behold the glory of God, how are we going to do it? How in the, do you just talk about Revelation chapter 4? Look at what Paul says in this is 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. But Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This is our goal, church, is that we would be servants of the purposes of the glorious one who sits on the throne. We don't have to be popular, we don't have to be dynamic, we don't have to have great hair. <laughs> Praise the Lord. We proclaim ourselves servants for your sake, right? Everybody around the throne serves the purposes of the throne. Everybody around the throne sings the praises of the throne. Everybody around the throne gains their understanding, their intellectual uh, power, their imagination, their emotion, all because of the throne. And look at what Paul says in this. This is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Where's that in your Bible? Genesis chapter 1. God who began this whole thing, the one who uh, by his will, they were created and existed. God who created and said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That's what God has done in the gospel. But he doesn't give us this light of the knowledge of the glory of God in some hard-to-understand vision. He does it, and Paul closes the verse by saying he's given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is why we preach Jesus. This is why we talk about Jesus. This is why we sing about Jesus, because in Jesus, we see the glory of God. That's what John says in his book in John chapter 1. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. This text is meant to reorient you. And my prayer for you in Revelation, my prayer for you today, my prayer for me as I teach these texts is that we would be a church that reorients our purposes, our service, and our worship around the glory of God. Amen? Father in heaven, We need to be reset and reformed. For those of us in this room who have been captivated by our own situations, our our despair, where it's hard to see you and hard to understand, Father, I pray just for a moment that we would have a glimpse of the glory that exists around your throne, that you would give us imagination in our mind's eye, that we would behold the glory of God that our church would exist for the purposes, for the design, for the worship of your name, that you are altogether glorious and beautiful, and to you is due all glory, honor, and power, that you are the eternal one, the omnipotent one, the sovereign one. So Father, we give thanks that as you created light, you shone light into our heart in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's only because of him that we come before you, that we pray, that we sing these songs, and that ultimately we find our purposes on this planet. For as long as you give us, may we be men and women who live for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.